If you brought your Bibles with you today, and I hope that you did, open them again to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 8, verses 11 through 26. Mark 8, 11 to 26. If uh, you're using one of the Bibles, it's under a seat in front of you, one of the black hardback Bibles. You should find Mark 8, uh, Mark chapter 8, on page 792. Uh, If you don't own a copy of the Bible, uh, please take that one that's under a seat in front of you as our gift to you. Take it home, use it, write notes in it, scribble in it, uh, write down all the questions you have about God and His Word, and let us know uh, what questions you may have so we can walk in God's Word with you. Uh, Mark chapter 8. Uh, verses 11 through 26. Uh, I have never been to a, a psychologist who has ever performed one of these tests on me, but they're familiar to you, a Rorschach test, uh, uh, an ink blot test. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, black ink kind of splotch on a piece of paper, on a card that is shown to a patient, to a client, and, and, and immediately uh, the, the, the psychologist will ask the patient what it is that they see. And based on their answers or their description of what they see on a series of 10 cards or so, the psychologist can make some inferences and maybe some assumptions, some conclusions about what's going on with their client, with their patient. The test is entirely subjective. Most of the ink blots look like, uh, the, 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 like things that most people commonly see, birds, bats, uh, people, stuff like that. Sometimes you get you know, weird responses, but it's all relatively subjective. This is what I see when I look at that. Sometimes we come to the Bible like a Rorschach test. We open it up and we look at Jesus in a rather subjective way. What do I see in Jesus? Jesus is even portrayed in popular media a number of different ways, depending on what people think they see in him based on their own preconceptions about him. But there's really only one Jesus that Scripture is intending for us to see. We're not meant to open Scripture and come to it like an inkblot test. Oh, that, this is what I think Jesus is like, such that we could all have differing answers and they're all equally true. Not, not the case. There's one Jesus that Scripture is intending for us to see. Amen. The question is, why does it seem so difficult for people to see him clearly? And not just people today in our own culture, people in the pages of Scripture who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who, who were fed by Jesus as a member of a multitude of people, fed you know, miraculously by uh, loaves and fish and that sort of thing. Why is it difficult for those who are right next to Jesus to see him clearly? That's a good question. It's a hard question to ask, and it's a, a question that is uh, brought to the fore of the passage that we'll be looking at today. Clearly understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is not easy for some kinds of people, as we'll see in Mark chapter 8. It's not easy to see Jesus clearly if you're the kind of person who's seeking signs, who's looking for miraculous evidence to prove that he's Jesus. It's not easy to see Jesus if you're a person who's overburdened by physical or worldly concerns. If the things of this world, if the things of this life are bigger in your sight than Jesus, it's hard to see him clearly. But clear vision of Jesus, a clear sight of Jesus, a clear perception of Christ does come for those who have faith. The main idea of our passage today, Mark 8, 11 to 26, is this, that Jesus gives sight to the spiritually blind so that we may see him clearly. How can we see him clearly? Well, if he gives us sight to see him. Jesus gives sight to the spiritually blind so that we may see him clearly. Knowing this from God's word and Mark's gospel, we ought to worship Jesus because he has revealed himself to us. knowing that Jesus gives us eyes of faith to see him clearly ought to bring us to worship, to gladness, to joy in him and to praise of him. And then at the same time, we ought to strive in prayer and faithful communication to help others to see him clearly too. I invite you as you're comfortably able, stand with me as we honor God by reading his word. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 26. Last week, we ended uh, or saw Jesus uh, kind of repeating or, or doing again uh, a second time a, a miracle he had performed once before. He fed 5,000 in Mark 6 from five loaves and two fish, and in Mark 8, he feeds 4,000 people from seven loaves and a few small fish, and then gets in his boat and goes to the other side, to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. We pick up in verse 11. Mark writes, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. He said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus gives sight to the spiritually blind so that we may see him clearly. We have now arrived in Mark's gospel at a pivotal transition point in his biography of Jesus. At the end of our passage today, Jesus will have concluded his ministry in and around Galilee. He will begin from this point forward, spending more time teaching his disciples primarily and directly. And he's going to turn his gaze toward Jerusalem and the final week of his life. Things are moving now at the, towards the end of uh, the, the middle, towards the end of Mark chapter 8. Things are moving very, very quickly toward the cross. Right here at this hinge point in Mark's gospel. And this really is a a hinge point in Mark's gospel. Quite frankly, uh, verses 22 through 26 are are kind of this this point on on which the whole gospel sort of turns. And I'm tempted, like I want, I'm going to preach verses 22 through 26 as a part of this passage. I'm also tempted to teach, uh, preach verses 22 through 26 with the next passage also. And, And at the same time, I'd like to preach verses 22 through 26 just by themselves. And since we all set our clocks back uh, an hour last night. I have an extra hour to preach today. <laughs> Bless you, sister. Uh, that's not my joke. Our, our deacon chairman sent me that uh, yesterday, and uh, Chris Thompson said, hey, you can preach for an extra hour if you want to tomorrow. We're all setting our clocks back. I said, we'll see how that goes. At any rate, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. So we're at this hinge point in Mark's gospel. Everything's going to turn in a bunch of different ways. And right here at this hinge point in Mark's gospel, we get three very quick scenes, boom, 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 just all one right after another, that all have to do with sight and what people around Jesus desire to see, what people around Jesus cannot see, and what people around Jesus are made to see. It's helpful to ask at this turning point in Mark's gospel, what do you see? So what do we see in these verses? First of all, in verses 11 through 13, we see Pharisees demanding a sign. Jesus, having just miraculously fed 4,000 people from seven loaves and a few fish, has now arrived on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, where again he's met by the Pharisees. We've seen these guys show up a number of times in Mark's gospel, and, and rarely, maybe never, is it a friendly interaction between them and Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, we have a a parallel account of this same instance. In Matthew's gospel, uh, the, the gospel writer there, Matthew, shows the Pharisees accompanied by their own opponents, the Sadducees. This is a sort of like enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing. The Pharisees opposed to Jesus. The Sadducees were opposed to Jesus because they were both opposed to Jesus. They're buddies in league with one another. Apart from Jesus, they had or at least their opposition to Jesus, they had relatively few things in common. The Pharisees represented a Jewish holiness reformation movement, but they had uh, on their own elevated their own rabbinic teaching and traditions to the same level of authority as Scripture. 
The Sadducees, on the other hand, were a, a group of people who were in league with Herod, the Tetrarch, the governor of Judea, the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. The Sadducees uh, represented a liberal theological movement that denied the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the dead and who themselves had cozied up to political leaders in order to get positions of power in the temple in Jerusalem. Most of the priests in the temple in that day were Sadducees and had gotten their positions by paying for them. So what would draw these theological enemies in league together? Jesus. And not in a positive way, in a negative way. This is right, just like we said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Jesus has become an enemy to the Pharisees, or the Pharisees have made him to be their enemy. The Sadducees have made Jesus to be their enemy, and, and now, having a common enemy, the Pharisees and the Sadducees band together against him by his healing, by his teaching, through his exorcisms, perhaps mostly by his growing popularity in and around Judea and Galilee, Jesus was now becoming a threat to their religious and political power that the Pharisees and the Sadducees held. So these groups come and disingenuously demand that Jesus give them a sign from heaven to prove his power and authority to do and to say what he's been doing and saying. They come to Jesus and say, prove it. Give us a sign. Do a sign. What sign from heaven do you give to, to show us that you are who you say you are? Mark tells us that they're not actually serious about this, but that they're asking for a sign in verse 11 to test him. The same word for test is, uh, the, is the word that Mark uses when he's talking about Jesus being in the wilderness, tempted, tested by Satan. Satan tempted, tested Jesus in the wilderness. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees are tempting, testing Jesus, asking him for a sign. What they wanted, what they were asking Jesus for, was something like a literal message riding in the sky by God's own finger in order for them to believe. In fact, they're essentially saying, Jesus, we will not believe that you have any of the authority uh, uh, in and of yourself to do these things unless we see a message in the sky from God. But they're not serious about this. They're demanding a sign that they, they really aren't serious for. So Jesus responds to them with a question. His question is telling, right? Why, why do you seek a sign? Why do you seek some miraculous message in the sky? He knows their hearts. He knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees aren't actually serious about this. This isn't the first time that they've questioned Jesus this way. He knows that if they haven't read the signs, if they haven't seen the signs of his the exorcisms that he's performed, of the healings that he's done, if they haven't paid attention already to his public teaching, and especially the feeding of the multitudes, which we've seen in, in two different instances in Mark's gospel, Jesus knows that if they've not paid attention to these things, they won't, not even a message in the sky written by God's own finger will actually prove anything for them. These Pharisees have the same problem that Pharaoh in Egypt in Exodus had. Pharaoh was told by Moses to let God's people go. And after 10 signs, 10 plagues of God's power and authority over Pharaoh and all that Pharaoh thought he had control of in Egypt, the king still refused. He hardened his heart against God. He would not let the people go. The Pharisees are now demanding a sign so that they may see that Jesus is real, that he really has authority, but they've already turned a blind eye to all of the evidence that's been plainly given. We see Pharisees demanding a sign. What's the point of Mark including this event in his biography of Jesus? I think the point is this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees demonstrate that they have a permanent, hardened, spiritual blindness that prevents them from seeing Jesus and the gospel clearly. They have intentionally and purposefully hardened their hearts and blinded their own eyes against what Jesus is doing, and they have determined they will not believe. Here's the wild thing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees aren't the only people who are guilty of this. Uh, in fact, all of us, apart from Christ, are guilty of this. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 25, he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Christ is the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jews wanted signs for, uh, uh, in Jesus' own day, wanted Jesus to perform signs to prove that he was who he said he was. The Gentiles uh, sought wisdom. Give us a, a word that will change our minds, that will influence, a cer- influence us a certain way. Uh, Gentiles of the day, Greeks of the day, even sought for themselves particular teachers to tell them what to think about the world around them. That was the case certainly in Corinth. But the problem with all of that is you've got people that are seeking something other than Jesus in order to soothe their souls. These are people whose hearts have been hardened by themselves and by Satan against the truth of God in the person of Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know someone who's like these Pharisees? Someone who says, if God wants me to believe in him, if Jesus is really the Christ, then why doesn't God just write a message in the sky to prove it? Why doesn't Jesus show up on Joe Rogan's podcast next week and tell us all who he is. If if God really wanted us to know that, he'd start a YouTube channel. And he'd publish content weekly for me to consume to prove that he's real. Do you know someone like that? Here's the danger in persons who demand these things of God. The danger is, is in the fact that they rarely mean what that, that they'll actually believe if it were to happen. Right. Most of the time, the, the request, the, 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 the experiment, the hypothetical that they put out there is, is disingenuously given. Like these Pharisees, they've already determined not to believe. And any sign or evidence that's given, they're determined to disprove as an actual sign. Ah, that, that can't really be what it was. We, we can explain it some other way, or certainly that's not it. That's not what I had in mind. That wasn't the message I wanted written. And what people who demand this are demanding ultimately is that God reveal himself to them on their terms. To put it extremely, but I think honestly, people like this, the Pharisees in this case, and people who demand the same sort of thing today are saying, God, if you're worthy of my attention, if you're worthy of my worship, you'll get it by ticking all my boxes. This, friends, is idolatry. Idolatry of the self. It is to say, God, if if we're going to play this game, we're going to play by my rules. And it's a game that Jesus recognizes in the Pharisees and flatly rejects to play. Not playing that game, guys. Why do you seek a sign? You know what? No sign's even going to be given to you. It's kind of interesting even the way that Jesus says it. In our English translations, it's usually translated, Jesus says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The way that Mark wrote it in the original Greek says something like, truly, I say to you, if a sign is given to this generation, end of sentence, Jesus walks away. Like, just, it's, it's a statement of exasperation. Jesus is going, if a sign were to be given to you, I, 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 don't, even, I don't even know what to do with that, but just, it ain't gonna happen. He walks away. Friends, be careful. Let us be careful that we not blind ourselves to what God is doing in Jesus the Christ by demanding that Jesus cater to our expectations. For in so doing, we may find in short order that Jesus leaves us behind in our hardened unbelief to face judgment for our prideful demands upon him. We see Pharisees who are demanding a sign who themselves have a permanent sort of spiritual blindness. They have intentionally hardened themselves against what God is doing in Christ. But that's not all we see in this passage today, we also see disciples missing the point. We see Pharisees who are blind on purpose, demanding a sign, and we see disciples who are missing the point about Jesus. So as we continue in verses 14 through 21, we see Jesus leaving the Pharisees. He gets back in the boat, and they head over to the northeastern shore of Galilee to a town called Bethsaida. Mark, the gospel writer, prepares us for what's about to happen, or he helps, kind of, helps us get ready for the interaction between Jesus and the disciples by telling us that the disciples had forgotten to bring bread with them in the boat for the trip to Bethsaida. Now, meanwhile, on the heels of this confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus says to his disciples in the boat, and this is probably the tail end of a longer conversation he's having with the disciples, but he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. We know that leaven, yeast, 
is a common image in Scripture for the way that small things can grow to have a great influence uh, upon larger things. Much, how, much like how a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough can cause that whole loaf of dough to, to rise and, uh, and grow in size. So also the disciples, as Jesus is saying, must be careful not to be influenced by those who are seeking signs and wonders as a proof of Jesus' identity. He's saying, watch out for the influence of the Pharisees and of Herod, of the Herodians, the Sadducees, of those that want to see signs to prove that God is doing something. Don't be influenced by them. The disciples, though, hear the word leaven, yeast, spoken in a figurative way by Jesus, and they start thinking literally about bread. Jesus said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. We only got one loaf of bread right here with us. We, we only have one loaf with us. There's 12 of us. Well, 13 if you count Jesus in the boat. We only have one loaf of bread. We're heading over to Bethsaida. Where do we have any food when we get there? What's going to happen when we get to the other side? How are we going to eat? Jesus is talking about leaven. I'm starving. And Jesus, hearing them and knowing what he clearly meant by his figure of speech, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. He asked the disciples in verse 17, seven straight questions. Beginning of verse 17, Jesus, aware that the disciples have completely missed the point, he's not talking about physical bread, says, here are all his questions. Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Y'all, I'm not talking about bread. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were picked up? And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets uh, broken pieces did you take up? And maybe an eighth question if we want to include verse 21. Do you not yet understand? The disciples missed the point, and Jesus responds with this you know, rapid-fire succession of questions to them. All of these questions, friends, are rhetorical. The answer is implied. Jesus is asking these questions not to figure out what the disciples actually think, but to help them to understand that they have no idea what they're talking about. Jesus is asking all of these questions to teach the disciples that they've misunderstood everything he's just said and everything he's just been talking about in terms of leaven. I'm not talking about actual bread here, guys. Every question that he asks them is about their lack of understanding. Did you catch that? They misunderstand the warning about leaven and they miss the warning about uh, looking, uh, about being those who seek G for Jesus to do a sign to prove his authority. They missed the point, not just of that incident, but also they missed the point of the previous two miraculous feedings of 5,000 and 4,000 people each. And they overlooked the fact that if Jesus can feed 9,000 strangers on two different episodes from five and seven loaves respectively, that they need not worry about bread if he's with them. There are two questions that come right back to back in the stream of questions that stand out in this passage. Jesus says, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, are you eyes to see? Are you blind? Having ears to hear? Are you deaf? These questions stand out because this isn't something new we've seen in Mark's gospel. And this theme of hard hearts, blind eyes, deaf ears is a motif. It's a theme that runs through much of Scripture. There are significant Old Testament echoes in the questions that Jesus is asking here. One of those echoes comes to us from the prophet Isaiah, where God says through his prophet in Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 18, he says to the people of Israel who have disobeyed God, who have pursued idolatry, whom God is about to send into exile, God says through his prophet to his people, hear you deaf and look you blind so that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? He's speaking about his servant, the people of Israel. Who is as deaf as my messenger, my people whom I send? Who is as blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. God says about his people, for all of his covenant relationship with them and all of the ways that he's provided for them and all the ways that he has spoken to them in his word and in his law, they still have missed everything. And the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read this, The word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Jesus asks, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, are you blind? Having ears, are you still deaf? 
And remember what Jesus said to the disciples about the reason he taught in parables anyway. In Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, when Jesus was alone with those around him and the 12 asked him about the parables, why do you speak in parables? Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that, and here he cites again the prophet Isaiah, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. When Jesus asks the question, are your hearts still hard? Are your eyes still blind? Are your ears still deaf? He's saying to the 12, these 12 that he's chosen to be, his, those that, that spend the most time with him in his public ministry, those who will become the foundation of the church that is built on him, he is saying to these 12, for all the time you've been with me, for all that I've taught you, everything that you've seen and heard and witnessed and participated in, you've still learned nothing. I said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, and you think, I'm talking about sourdough. Now, this much is true. The disciples, though they miss the point, are not like the Pharisees. The disciples have a blurry vision of Jesus. They're struggling to see him clearly. They're struggling to understand him clearly. But they don't have a total blindness like the Pharisees do. In fact, we see in the very next passage we'll look at next Sunday, Mark chapter 8, verse 29, we see that Peter has a moment of amazing clarity when he proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, God's Messiah, the one that, that God said would come to deliver his people. Peter has an amazing moment of clarity in just a few verses. Now, of course, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ is directly followed by Jesus rebuking Peter for saying that the Christ must not suffer and die. That's not what he does, Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And, that, and so he, even when Peter has this astounding moment of clarity, his vision is still somewhat obscured. The disciples are not like the Pharisees. They don't have a permanent blindness to who Jesus is. They have something like a temporary blindness to Jesus, a, a temporary vision impairment to seeing Jesus clearly. Now, some of their impairment is out of concern for physical needs, like bread and how are we going to eat when we get to where we're going. Some of their inability to see Jesus is, is obscured by present worries, but most of their blindness, most of their fuzziness about who Jesus is, is due to genuine ignorance, just stuff they don't know and can't know yet. In fact, the disciples will not see Jesus clearly until we get past the crucifixion and resurrection and they see the risen Jesus with their own eyes. In John's gospel, John chapter 12, following Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on the first day of the last week of his life, John says this, and the disciples watched Jesus ride in on the, the colt of a, of a donkey and, and uh, people laying their coats on the road saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. John says in John chapter 12, verse 16, that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that's John's way of saying after he was resurrected, uh, from the dead and appeared to them. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The great clarifying event for the disciples is coming. Right? His crucifixion and resurrection, the one thing that will make it abundantly clear who Jesus is, is coming for the disciples and for everyone after that point. But friends, we don't have to wait for that. We already have it. We're not living this with the disciples. We're not stuck in, in a place of temporary blindness about Jesus. We know where this is going. We know of his crucifixion for sins. We know of his, uh, of his resurrection from the dead. We know where all of this is headed. We have everything we need to see Jesus clearly. What's the point of these disciples missing the point about Jesus? Well, the point is that there's a kind of blindness to Jesus that is, that is eventually made clear by his death and resurrection. It's Christ's death for sins. It's his rising again that are absolutely essential to understanding who he is. In fact, to understand Jesus as anything or as anyone apart from his death for sins and his resurrection is to not understand Jesus at all. If we see Jesus as merely a miracle worker, we have not seen Jesus clearly. If we see him as only a great moral teacher, we have not seen Jesus clearly. If we see Jesus as a poor victim of jealous religious power brokers, we fail to see Jesus clearly. 
If we perceive Jesus as only a mighty man of God, we fail to see him clearly. Friends, Jesus is the Christ, Mark is sure to tell us from the first verse of his gospel. The very eternal Son of God in human flesh who fulfills God the Father's plan to reconcile sinners to himself by dying in their place and to justify those sinners who trust in him and repent of their sin by rising from the dead to secure their salvation. This is who Jesus is. If Jesus is to you anything less than the crucified and risen Son of God, Lord of the cosmos and Lord of your life, friend, you've not yet seen Him clearly. I implore you, get past the disciples in the boat here. Get to the end of the Gospels. Get to the book of Acts where the consistent testimony of who Jesus is is not just that He is a miracle worker or a teacher or a good example to follow, but that He is the crucified and risen Son of God, God's own Christ, His Messiah, sent for all people to believe in and to be saved. That's what it is to see Jesus clearly. We see Pharisees demanding a sign, have a permanent sort of spiritual blindness. We see disciples who are missing the point because... They've not yet seen all that Jesus will do, and and because of that, they can't fully understand what it means for him to be the Christ. But finally, we see in the last scene, verses 22 through 26, we see Jesus giving sight to the blind. We see Jesus giving sight to those who cannot see. After Jesus and the disciples arrive in Bethsaida on the northwest shore of Galilee, which was incidentally the hometown of Philip and Peter and Andrew, A crowd there in Bethsaida brings a blind man to Jesus and they beg Jesus, they implore him to lay hands on this blind man and to heal him. Again, nearly everywhere Jesus goes, a crowd finds him. This is is boilerplate for us in Mark. Everywhere Jesus goes, his reputation precedes him and people come to see him. And like the deaf man in the Decapolis in the prior chapter of Mark, a crowd brings a needy man to Jesus for healing and begs him, touch him, do something for this man. So Jesus takes this man away privately with the disciples, leads him out of the village, and begins to heal the man. Now, like with the deaf man that we saw in Mark chapter 7, Jesus spits again. There's two healings, almost almost back-to-back, that both involve saliva. This time, he spits on the man's eyes. If you ever ask me to come pray for you because you're ill, do not expect me to spit on you. No. Mark doesn't say exactly why Jesus does this, though it was not uncommon to use saliva in, in uh, medical uh, types of procedures uh, in that day as, a, as, a, as an ointment of sorts. But nevertheless, Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus spits, but he does, and then he touches the man's eyes. Jesus does this often in healing. He lays his hands on those that he is healing. And he asks the blind man, Do you see anything? And the man does see some things, but he doesn't see clearly. He says, I see men walking around, probably the disciples or who he saw, but they look like trees walking around. You ask, how does a blind man know what a tree looks like? I don't know. But he probably bumped into one or two and figured, the things that I ran into are the things that look like what are walking around. He sees the disciples, but he doesn't see them clearly. They're indistinct. They're blurry. Jesus applies his hands to the man's eyes again, and when he removes them the second time, the man looks up, his sight is restored, and Mark says he saw everything clearly. Perfect 2020 vision, maybe even better, 2015 vision. Here's what's interesting. This healing is only recorded in Mark's gospel. Matthew, Luke, John don't record it. Mark does. And this healing stands out because it's the only recorded miracle of Jesus that takes place in phases. It's like phase one, phase two. Phase one, partial healing. Phase two, complete healing. So what's up with that? Why did Jesus heal this man in two steps? Was Jesus tired from the boat trip and the feeding and the conflict with the Pharisees? Is Jesus out of juice? And it's just like, oh man, this is take more energy than I thought. I better give it a double application. Did he somehow underestimate the amount of power needed to heal this man? No, of course not. None of these is the case. Jesus never does anything accidentally or imperfectly. It's important to know that. So when you see Jesus doing things that look strange to you in Scripture, know that he's doing them on purpose, okay? Never accidentally, never imperfectly. Always to teach or to reveal something. 
I think that Jesus is healing this man in two phases to teach the disciples something about the spiritual sight that they failed to display in the boat just a moment before. First, Jesus is illustrating that if anyone is to have eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is ready to obey, remember those are his questions to the disciples. If anyone is going to have eyes of spiritual sight, ears of spiritual hearing, a heart that's ready to respond, that God himself must give that sight and hearing and softness of heart. The Apostle Paul illustrates this reality for us in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, that is to say, even if our gospel is difficult to understand or some people are slow to understand it, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says there's a spiritual blindness for everyone who does not believe. And if we are to see anything, it must be God himself who said, let there be light, and there was light, himself also shining the light of truth into our hearts so that we can see Jesus clearly. Jesus is illustrating that God must give spiritual sight, spiritual hearing, spiritual softness of heart to see Jesus clearly. But Jesus is also illustrating by this two-phase healing that what spiritual sight the disciples do have, though blurry, will in time become crystal clear. The disciples see Jesus in this moment, or at least in the boat. They see him, but blurry. They see him, but indistinctly. They know something of his power. They know something of his influence. They may have some indication of his identity, that he's the son of God, that that he's the Christ. But but knowing all that that means, having a clear uh, vision, a clear understanding of what that means for Jesus, hasn't happened for them yet, but it will. It will. We get a hint of the the clarifying nature of their spiritual sight in the very next section when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. But we see it most clearly after the resurrection, as I said before. In Luke's gospel, we see this clear vision of Jesus happen in real time for two of his disciples. The day of the resurrection, two of Jesus' disciples, uh, Cleopas and another, these are probably not among the twelve, but among the, the broader group that followed Jesus a little more consistently. These two disciples, Cleopas and another unnamed one, were walking on a road from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And Jesus, having been raised from the dead in his resurrected and glorified body, meets with these two men on the road and walks with them all the way to Emmaus. They tell this man, they don't know that it's Jesus yet, they tell him about their friend Jesus who had been crucified just a couple of days before and how now, just this morning, his tomb was found empty. And about some other disciples, Peter and, and, and James and maybe John, who saw the tomb empty. And, and now we're here in Jerusalem trying to figure out what in the world does any of this mean? We pick up in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 31. Just listen. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He, Jesus, interpreted to them, these two disciples, in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. It's toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and he blessed and he broke it. It's something we've seen Jesus do twice in the feedings, right? The 5,000 and the 4,000. It's something we saw Jesus do at the last supper. He took bread and blessed it and broke it, gave it to his disciples. This is saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Here now with these two disciples, still veiled by his, his glory, he takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it and gives it to him. We read in verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Oh, we get it now. Luke says, and he vanished from their sight. What's the point of this this healing of this blind man in phases? I think it's this, that while we have a natural blindness in our sin, while we have a natural blindness in our sin to the truth of who Jesus is, the good news is that Jesus gives spiritual sight to the blind. 
The good news is that Jesus doesn't leave blind people in their blindness. Here is great hope. Friend, that if you struggle to see Jesus clearly, if you are, if you are not living in a hardened unbel- a state of unbelief, but if you struggle to see Jesus clearly, He can and loves to give eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand Him. If you find it hard to understand Jesus, He can give you ears to hear. And friends, He loves doing this. He loves surprising people with His grace to see Him clearly so that they may trust Him. Now maybe this morning you object to that statement that Jesus gives sight to the blind, saying something like, you're saying I'm spiritually blind and I won't see Jesus as Savior until he gives me spiritual sight to apprehend him. Yes, you've heard me clearly. You may also object saying, Stephen, you're saying that I can't see Jesus clearly as Messiah, as Savior, as God promised and and receive him in faith. You're saying I can't see him until I have faith in him, but I'm telling you that I don't trust him because I don't see him as Savior. So the, the, the problem, Stephen, is all on you, man. You're telling me I'm blind and I can't see and I won't see until Jesus makes me see. I have to have faith to see, but I don't have faith because I don't see. It sounds, Stephen, like you've condemned me never to see or to be saved. Or else, Stephen, that you're saying Jesus has to do something to me without my consent to make me see. How is that fair? Here's my response. The way that Jesus gives spiritual sight is not just by miraculous touch, like we see with this blind man. In fact, your very presence this morning among other believers, your reading and hearing the Bible proclaimed, is a means by which Jesus works to give eyes and ears of faith. Listen to what, again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 13 through 17. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a wonderful promise. Then he asks a question. How can anyone call on him in whom they've never believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Paul says, so faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. We're not meant to wait for a message written in the sky by the finger of God. We have the word of God itself. These scriptures we hold in our laps this morning, written for us. We need not hope for someone to come back from the dead to tell us what awaits on the other side. Christ himself, friends, has already risen, as attested to us by eyewitnesses in the scriptures. We do not need a new miraculous prophetic word to give us some knowledge of God that we've not yet attained. We have the scriptures that testify to themselves that they are able to make us wise for salvation, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. The question to you, dear friend, if you object to this idea of not being able to see unless Jesus does something for us, my question to you is, having heard of Christ from his word this morning, how will you respond? If knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, well, friends, you've heard the word of Christ today. Will you believe? Knowing that Jesus can and knowing that Jesus delights to surprise people with spiritual sight when they believe, what will you do? What will you do? Confronted by Jesus this morning, what will you do with him? As I reflect on this passage in Mark 8, with an eye toward those who may not yet know Jesus, I'm mindful of Dear friends of mine and family members of mine who have, as best as I can explain it, a a blindness to Jesus. I pray that one day that blindness would be removed. Now, listen, they know the outlines of the gospel. They know what the Bible claims about Christ. But somehow they've not yet been able to see their own sin and their own need for Jesus clearly. And hard as I try and hard as it is to see my wife try to communicate the gospel clearly to these in our lives who don't see Jesus yet, there's still a fog, there's still a a wall, there's still a barrier to belief in their lives. Friends, I believe that Jesus can destroy that barrier of disbelief and that he can and longs to grant spiritual sight and faith. I also know that I can't do any of that for someone else. I can't force someone to see him. I can't force someone to believe. Only Jesus gives sight to the blind that way. Only God, who spoke light into darkness, has shown the light of truth on the hearts of those who believe. So I pray 
And I encourage you, Christian, I encourage you to pray too. To pray fervently, to pray zealously that God would break through the hardness of unbelief to cause light to shine into darkness and to draw the lost to see Jesus clearly and to run to Him. I know it's good to be prepared with a a well-reasoned answer for the faith that we have in us to those who don't believe. But I also know that a well-reasoned answer isn't going to change someone's unbelief to believe. I know that the grace of God alone is what has to do it. So I try to be ready, try to be ready with a presentation of the gospel, try to be ready with an explanation of who Jesus is, be ready with an invitation to call people to believe in Christ. But I know at the end of the day, it's God himself who has to turn their hearts to draw them to love him. Now, perhaps you're thinking about these events in Jesus's life and you're wondering, what does it mean for me personally? What must I do in response to these truths now that I am or since I have been a follower of Jesus? I've seen Jesus clearly. I've believed him. So what? I want to respond by asking, what do you, what do you do anytime that you see something uh, truly beautiful? What do you do anytime you see something truly grand? What do you do anytime you see something truly astounding? Because that's what we're seeing in Jesus, a beautiful, wonderful, grand truth that he gives eyes to see to the spiritually blind. When you see something beautiful, grand, astounding, do you stop to stare at it? Do you consider it from every angle? Do you you take out a journal and draw a sketch or write your thoughts or take out your phone to snap a photo so that you can remember what you're seeing forever? Do you plan a trip to return to that museum, to that mountain, to that spot where you proposed to your wife? Do you tell other people about that place? Do you take them with you to see it too? When you see something truly beautiful, grand, and astounding, do you buy books and watch videos and listen to podcasts about that thing to make sure you don't miss any detail that you must know about that beautiful sight that you beheld? Do you revel in its glory and sing its praises? Friends, if you've seen Jesus clearly in all his beauty as God in human flesh, suffering Redeemer, risen Savior, ever-living Lord, my goodness, you ought to do the very same. Stop and stare at him. Sometimes we get so consumed with, okay, I've read the Bible, now what must I go do today that we forget to stop and look at Jesus? Friends, I am absolutely convinced, 100% convinced, more than 100% if that were physically possible, that until the church of Jesus Christ has an astounding view of his beauty and majesty, until those who follow Jesus love to be in his presence and to gaze on his glory and his excellency more than anything else in the world, we will continue to be relatively ineffective in our ministry. Until Jesus himself compels and draws our eyes to look on him with love and wonder and worship and joy and gladness and godly fear and reverence, until we see him that way and until we learn to stop and to stare at him in his glory, to enjoy all that is beautiful about him, we'll have nothing to offer to a world that only sees bleakness and blackness and darkness all around us. Stop and stare at Jesus, this one who gives eyes to the blind that they may see. Consider him in his word from every angle. Record your thoughts, discuss him joyfully with others who share that same passion for his glory. We'll do that in Bible study groups in a moment. Return week after week to consider him again with the saints. Proclaim his beauty to those who have not seen it and bring them with you. Bring them with you to scripture. Bring them with you to worship. Bring them with you to to prayer so that they might see Jesus like you see Jesus. We're not trying to convince people that Jesus is real. We're We're trying to show people that Jesus is beautiful gather and and steep in faithful resources that help you to understand Jesus ever more clearly and walk with him ever more faithfully revel in his glory sing the praises of his wonderful grace his amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me a once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The the hymn writer John Newton, who wrote that hymn, was a British slave trader. Buying, purchasing, and selling people from the continent of Africa in slave service to British colonies and to the American colonies. Had an astounding interaction with the risen Jesus by faith. Was given eyes to see, and his whole life was transformed. 
He went from slave trader to lead abolitionist in British history. Why? Because he saw Jesus. He saw that the beauty of Jesus was far better than anything that the slave trade could gain him. And in seeing the beauty of Jesus, he saw the blackness of the, the horrible, sinful, rotten nature of the slave trade that he was involved in. And so changed by Jesus, he said, I, the world must know this grace. The world must know freedom. Freedom that comes in Christ, but also freedom from being bound in slavery. Because Jesus broke through the darkness of John Newton's sin, because Jesus broke through the darkness of my sin, because Jesus broke through the darkness of your sin and the blindness of our unbelief, in order to see him clearly, we with joy gaze on Jesus. And you're saying, Stephen, that doesn't give me anything to do this week. I want to ask you, why are you talking about bread? Life with Christ is worship. It's gazing on Jesus. It's reveling in His beauty. It's loving His presence. And friends, I'm by no means mature in this. I'm by no means mature in this, but day by day, I am loving seeing Jesus more and more clearly. And I can't wait for the day I see Him face to face. And it is a love for Jesus in all of His beauty that shapes and drives my heart of love for those who don't know Him yet because they've not yet seen the most beautiful thing they can. Jesus gives eyes to the spiritually blind that they may see him and revel in his glory. He does it through the preaching of his word. He does it through the prayers of the saints on behalf of those. And by saints, I don't mean dead people. By saints, I mean you all. He does it through the prayers of his people for those who haven't seen him yet. He does it always miraculously by showing us what we have not seen in him yet, so that when we do, we long, nothing, we long for nothing more than to run to him and to bask in his glory. Let's pray together.